Welcome to New Books in Sound Studies. Today we're speaking about Keywords in Sound, edited by David Novak and Max Sakakini, and published by Duke University Press in 2015. Sound is a vibration that is perceived and becomes known for its materiality. Metaphors for sound construct, construct perceptual conditions of hearing and shape the territories and boundaries of sound in social life. Sound resides in this feedback loop of materiality and metaphor, infusing words with a diverse spectrum of meanings and interpretations. So opens the introduction to Key Words in Sound, the book that we're going to talk about today. Uh, it explores 20 different keywords from a r- wide range of contributors. And I'm really happy to have the book's two editors here on the podcast. Welcome, David and Matt. Hey, how's it going? This is Matt. Uh, this is Dave. David is an associate professor of music at the University of California, Santa Barbara, whilst Matt Sakahini is associate professor of music at Tulane University. Let's let's dive straight in uh, to talk a little bit about the book. Uh, the book is um, based very much within the world of sound studies, but it's not called Keywords in Sound Studies, but rather Keywords in Sound. Um, why did you make this choice? Uh, well, the... It's not that we have anything against sound studies, of course. Um, We are interested in sound studies. We love sound studies. But we thought that sound was a topic that, you know, extended beyond the emergence of this relatively recent, um, however you'd like to think about it, interdisciplinary field and or subject of study or discipline, however, you you know, we would like to think about it. I think... um, Rather than get too much into, you know, what sound studies is, I, I just want to say why we were interested in sound was we thought it, it, it you know, very much exceeded um, the existing interest. Everybody is aware that 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 the emergence of certain kinds of uh, perspectives and subjects and methods for looking at sound um, in sound studies, it, you know, the promise of it is so great. And part of that was thinking about sound as something that had um, so many histories and histories that were, you know, sort of surprisingly disciplinary, surprisingly exclusive and po- possibly even exclusionary of other perspectives. So we really wanted to address that exclusionary um, problem that was keeping interdisciplinary conversations from developing the way that we thought they might by addressing sound as a topic and addressing it as a topic that had you know, pre-existed any concept of sound studies and pre-existed any exercise of trying to look at ways in which one might study sound, but ways in which sound had already been um, considered. And sometimes as a peripheral peripheral or auxiliary subject to what was considered the important thing, like music or language um, and or, you know, even acoustic science, the the emergence of technologies in which sound was the thing that was being observed, but not um, sort of frontally considered or not being um, put at the core. And, and yet, uh, if you looked at those histories, um, you found how um, these epistemologies and of sound had developed in very particular ways and created uh, genealogies of thought that that were worth um, putting uh, putting into conversation with one another. So that's why we, we thought of sound and not um, particularly sound studies for the book. But maybe, Matt, do you want to add something there? I think that's great. I think I would just add that we I, I think of it as sort of institutional baggage. It's like there are these legacies and genealogies and histories 
of thought that um, are, are kind of tentacles that don't necessarily uh, meet up in uh, and fulfill the potential of sound studies as an interdisciplinary field. And so um, we, we would imagine a more inclusive or encompassing sound studies, uh, uh, at least that was our hope, at the same time recognizing that sound studies as a kind of uh, coalescing uh, uh, inclusive field has brought a lot of attention and a lot of new uh, thought to sound as a kind of encompassing category for uh, what historically has been pretty uh, divided up and, and, and we would imagine an even more inclusive sound studies where it takes sound as a central object or practice or metaphor um, uh, while at the same time not uh, uh, taking that back into our silos of music studies or 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 fill in the blank. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. One of one of the things um, I found quite striking about the book. I mean, before I once I asked you know for a review copy and I saw it had twenty chapters when it when it arrived in the post, I thought it was actually relatively thin. I was expecting a tomb, so the the, the contributions are, are relatively short, which is something I, I really appreciate. But I appreciate it's probably quite hard to write such a such tight. Um, chapters, and I'm guessing also to edit them from your side. Why did you want such uh, such length of contributions? Well, there's there's actually a, a format to the book, which is that we asked each contributor to uh, uh, provide a, a a sort of definition of a term as it's amassed over time. So, how has transduction historically been invoked? Um, uh, uh, prior to sound studies and since the emergence of sound studies, then we asked each contributor, in a sense, to problematize that legacy and then end their keyword entry with a sort of um, uh, uh, gesture towards the future, identifying a problem, uh, identifying an area that hasn't been um, addressed yet in the field of say, noise or space or, or what have you, present a case study. So there's actually a, um, a format to each of the entries, and the length was important to us because we wanted, uh, we were looking for clarity and concision. And in some sense, uh, we see one keywords and sound as one, an introductory text for someone that is new to uh, 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 thinking about sound critically both students, scholars, and general readers. And two, that um, uh, I, we thought of it as a sort of manual, in a sense, to where we've come with these terms, and in some sense then gesturing towards where we might go so that our colleagues in sound studies broadly in whatever discipline they, they sign on to within that um, uh, uh, could use it in some sense as a sort of grounds for future work. In other words, not as a prescription for the way things should be done, but as a description of the way things have been done and a gesture towards the potential of where they could go. So these are not, you know, case studies or um, uh, long uh, treatises or even interpretive discussions of a term. Uh, they're meant to be um, 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 uh, 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 condensed into something digestible, and they're not meant to be a beginning, middle, and end. They're meant to be a sort of opening into um, a look back at the past and an opening into the future. Yes, and I would 
add that we do have these um, sort of short contributions that might lead people to perceive this book as kind of a dictionary or encyclopedia. And in that sense, um, that's not what we intended. We didn't intend to say these are the 20 categories that are the most important or the most central, although, of course, we chose them because we thought they were important. Um, we wanted them to be the concise arguments about things that would contribute to the to the field. But we didn't intend uh, these contributions to be the um, you know, to be the absolute references in the same way that we were really inspired by by Raymond, Raymond Williams is not trying to consider all of the different um, ways in which culture has ever been conceived. He is he is not trying to argue that the only terms in keywords uh, are the only terms that of social life or the only terms that one could ever use to conceive of the world. But really, the um, the terms that can be turned over for their many facets and revealed for their complexity and shown in many ways to not resolve in simple, you know, dictionary type definitions. So they're not so easy to understand. And we don't propose to close the door on that understanding with just by having a short contribution, which would be uh, very much the opposite of our of our of our perspective. We're, we're trying to use these as um, conversation starters and jumping off points. And yes, it was hard to edit that because it's it's forcing people to do uh, a job that's that's, um, you know, quite complicated and asking those contributions all to line up across the volume, which, you know, which which was uh, uh, successful to different degrees and and a complicated um, job for both of us. But we we thought it came out a lot, a lot stronger for that um, sort of having an agenda that didn't just um, sprawl too far from a from a sort of concentrated um, structure. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, for me, it worked. Uh, it worked really well. Um, I think I told you an email before. I was assigning some chapters um, in a, in a course I'm teaching because they work really well as yeah, like you were saying, both both as a history of a of a of a, of a certain term, but also really as a, as a as an opening and a jumping off point. So let's let's turn to some of those uh, some of the contributions, and it's organized alphabetically um, from acoustomology is the first one to to voice is the last one. So let's start with acoustomology um partly because i think it's, a, it's an intriguing choice uh, as far as i read it it's the only chapter that deals with a concept that the author themselves coined in this case uh, the author is stephen uh, feld sort of one, one of the grandfathers can we say of of sound studies and, and a lot of his work has been done in the rainforest with the kaluli people of, of papua new guinea so let's listen to a, a short clip from there first and then and then i'll and then i'll ask my question So um, for those unfamiliar with the term, what is acoustomology uh, and how does it speak um, to some of the other keywords in your collection? Well, I think Stephen Feld coined the term acoustomology, as he says in the opening keyword, essentially as how does sound inform uh, a culture or an individual's ontological worldview? And that was actually a term that he came to after a you know three decades long search to describe what he encountered uh, in Papua New Guinea uh, initially in the 1970s 
uh, 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 researching the Kaluli people in the rainforest and trying to uh, 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 translate to a Western audience as an anthropologist and as an ethnomusicologist uh, a Kaluli worldview of how sound informed their their daily lives and ritual uh, 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 structures and um, uh, and the the process of of uh, uh, life and death and what he observed was uh, a very dense sound environment in the rainforest of waterfalls, uh, bird calls, uh, and human uh, sounds of percussion and voice that not only blended with those sounds, but uh, 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 mimed them, mimicked them, and created a dense uh, uh, soundscape would be the only term that in the 1970s to describe what he heard there. And soundscape is a term that's very foundational to sound studies, um, associated mostly with uh, Murray Schaefer, uh, a sort of um, uh, uh, ecological um, uh, philosopher and composer who, who invented the term soundscape or, or uh, deployed the term soundscape to describe um, different acoustic environments. And Feld used that term initially to describe uh, the Kaluli's interaction, sonic interaction in the rainforest, but ultimately moved beyond Schaefer's term of the soundscape because Feld increasingly came to feel limited by the notion of soundscape because the Kaluli on ontology of what they heard, a bird call, um, uh, and the sounds they made with their voices and instruments uh, didn't match up to Schaefer or any other Westerns, Westerners notion of how uh, sound informed their daily lives. So acoustomology in that sense was meant to be a more encompassing term that not only encompassed a world of sound that might include what Westerners describe as music and someone else doesn't describe in, in musical terms, um, but also encompass those very worldviews themselves that, that uh, diverge across the globe. And I think one of the, the key questions our, our volume asks, um, and, and maybe Dave can say more about this, is, um, is how to deal with the elephant in the room of sound studies, which is music. In other words, there's just a, a much longer uh, uh, institutional history going back to antiquity and Greek notions of the quadrivium that that all formal studies should include the study of music. What do we do as sound studies scholars with this uh, baggage of a Western notion of music that sort of infiltrates and influences how um, we understand the world of sound and in some sense offers a possibility in how um, uh, 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 people have interpreted and studied music over the years, over the millennia, and on the other hand, maybe limits us in how we um, can think more capaciously about uh, uh, music within the larger domain of sound. Well, before I go anywhere into the realm of music, I want to stick with acoustomology just for a second, uh, talk a little bit about the importance of Feld to this volume and to the way that we were thinking about um, sound. And part of it is the uh, the way in which Steve is really not working with music very much in his work, and uh, in which 
he's trying to deal with sound and listening and hearing and this sort of sonic relations as a non-universal thing. And, and the, the whole idea of acoustomology is to show that it's possible for there to be difference between the way people hear and for the way in which people understand sound and make it part of their being, the the way that they experience uh, sound is not something that we can reduce to a, a scientific universal that we, you know, so much of, of, of our understandings of sound have to do with measurement of sound, have to do with um, being able to understand sound as a scientific object. And acoustomology really brings us to this relational ontology, which is looking at the ways in which people, actors, um, and, and the, the, where they are and, the, and the, what they share um, as experience organizes their being in sound. And, and that's a very important part of what Steve Feld brings to the conversation. We really wanted to start with him and emphasize his work because we thought that that was a very uh, necessary thing to bring to a sound studies that had started to develop um, pretty strongly as a history of science discipline. And although we love that and, and are invested in that, wanted also to bring these histories of listening that were sort of um, diverse and not just globally and culturally, but also in terms of ways of being. And I think that um, what Steve brings to that conversation, Steve Feld's work brings to that conversation, is not just text, but these recordings. And so part of what's um, great about the way that um, Feld's contributions have been integrated into sound studies is that he took some of those things from Schaefer, like making soundscape recordings, and brought them into new dimensions. And he talks about that in his chapter, where he talks about how he learned not just from recording the recordings that he made and listening to them, but from the recording process him, uh, as he developed it in dialogue with the Kaluli. And dialogue was wordless dialogue a lot. Sometimes it was just they would listen to the headphones and point his microphone in the direction of a bird. Um, and the way in which recordings are so important, uh, sound recordings are so important as a kind of text for sound uh, studies is something that I think his work really... Um, brings brings us to to in, in important ways and so if you like look at the space entry by andy eisenberg he ends with a case study of the adan the call to prayer uh in a muslim mosque in uh kenya and in some sense does an acoustomological study of how the call to prayer circumscribes uh an urban public space as uh, a, a muslim religious uh, sacred space and then on the other hand in transduction the entry by uh, uh, Stefan Helmreich he probes the limits of acoustomology he he um, enters in a, a submarine where scientists go down underwater to study uh, the uh, uh, underwater environment and fish life marine life um, and talks about how acoustomology as an organizing term, in his mind, doesn't work as an analytical tool to understand the sonic properties and the technical issues of transduction, of hearing the marine life in this uh, submarine vessel and the need for technologies to, to literally transduce those sounds for, from uh, a one natural environment through uh, 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 the, the need for technology. So... Uh, acoustomology is by no means, uh, uh, we're suggesting in this book, uh, some all-encompassing term, but it's a, a fundamental uh, um, 
uh, theory that uh, uh, then other theorists can see how it does and does not apply to um, uh, uh, whatever uh, uh, fields of research they're working on. <laughs> Thank you, uh, both of you, for that answer. I, I agree; it really sets up the uh, the rest of the contributions uh, really, really nicely. Um, we open this um, podcast with, um, I'm guessing, some uh, some music that maybe we're all familiar with, or music rather, elevator music. Um, let's listen to a little bit more of that before I before we speak uh, about music itself. <laughs> This music uh, is maybe a music so bland, some people might even claim that it shouldn't be classed as music at all, just as, you know, background uh, something that, that exists. So maybe turning to your contribution now, Matt, uh, which is on the keyword music, I was wondering, can you tell us uh, what is it that makes a sound or a collection of sounds musical or not? Uh, well, obviously, your setup is done knowingly that of, of course I'm going to say music is in the ear of the beholder, right? That music is not a universal and the notion that music is a universal um, comes out of a, a, a Eurocentric Western epistemological tradition that puts uh, a European classical music at the top of a cultural hierarchy, right? As, as Matthew Arnold, the, problematic romantic said uh, as the best that man has has done right and so um on the other side as you play that muzak example that comes from um I, i'm citing there a, a wonderful essay by uh, jonathan stern about the mall of america in minnesota and how they use muzak um uh, in none of the ways that align with the romantic conception of what music is, right? So if we were to read uh, uh, someone like Adorno, a, a famous uh, uh, theorist of, of music from the early 20th century, there's all these presumptions that come along with how listeners should engage with this thing called music, right? And first and foremost among them is that it's a, a direct and unmediated uh, engagement and that listening is something that wholly subsumes the subject. And Stern is going into this Mall of America and saying, is this music really even functioning as music? It's it's programmed for what Adorno uh, would decry as distracted listening. In other words, it's not meant to be engaged with directly. It's meant to be engaged with passively. And Stern would argue it doesn't really conform to a Western sensibility of what music is. It's really functioning as sound, as background uh, uh, sound. I don't want to say noise, but as as a uh, environmental layer, right? For uh, that that maybe facilitates consumption in a mall environment, or that makes people less socially awkward in an in an elevator standing together, right? Um, this 
has broad implications for music studies and sound studies, and, or, or I should say this example, um, we might have another example. I already mentioned the call to prayer, right? Uh, um, Western ears might hear the call to prayer as something that has melodic contour and shape and call it music, and then pious Muslims might not hear the call to prayer as music in their um, sacred or theological view uh, uh, it's um, it's the word of God, right? And that might be separate from music. There's, you know, very sinister examples as well, right? If I think of um, Suzanne Cusick or Martin Daughtry's work on acoustic violence, on especially how uh, mil state militaries use um, quote-unquote music as a form of torture by uh, blasting loud uh, uh, aggressive music um, to date to date detainees who are don't have the option of tuning out this music. Um, uh, uh, they would argue that music, as it was conceived, composed, and recorded, ceases to have the properties of music. It, it exists as sheer sound that is meant to uh, uh, disable the will of these subjects of these prisoners. So. Um, just to, to wrap up and get back to your question, is it music? Is it not music? Those are ultimately subjective, situational, provisional uh, discussions, and this is something that both that sound studies has grappled with, and, and I would say that music studies uh, 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 is beginning to grapple with, and hopefully uh, there'll be some productive synergy there. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Thank you for that. Uh... Um, as you said, music is in the ear of the beholder. Um, I have a friend who makes uh, noise music, and I was putting on uh, one of his latest tapes, cassettes he, he makes, and uh, my partner told me if I put that on again in her presence, she would break my tape player. Um, so this seems a good uh, a good moment to maybe listen to some some noise music, and it also bring us on to talk about um, David's contribution. This is uh, Merzbo, which is probably the most famous uh, Japanese noise musician. This is Woodpecker Number no. 1 um, from the album Pulse Demon. Um, I don't know um, how people at home read academic books or even yourselves, but when I do, I do it with a, with a pencil in hand and I underline and, and, and leave lots and lots of notes to myself. And um, David, your contribution is on the keyword noise, as I just mentioned. And it's really nicely written, beautifully written essay. And there was one line, the last line, which I didn't only underline, but I drew a box around it and, and some little stars to know it's important to go back to. And uh, it struck me again as I, as I prepared for this interview. So I d I'll just read it now. It says, noise is culture. Noises communication, noises music. So uh, I was wondering, could you unpack that a little bit for us? Yeah, sure. Um, well, you started with an example of uh, noise music, actually the archetypal example of noise music, which is Meritzbau, uh, a Japanese um, noise music uh, composer, um, some called Japan noise. Um, 
And what I would say about that is that in, in many ways, it's, it's not such a great noise music, which is what I spent, you know, years studying and what my book was about, isn't such a great example of noise discourse, which is why I wanted to write this chapter, because in some ways, um, noise music is so spectacular as, a, as an object of sound. And in fact, noise is a very ordinary kind of extraordinary. Noise is, is a very um, sort of typical thing. It's maybe as typical as, as any other understanding of sound. So I... One of the uh, one of the ways which people sometimes think about noise is is like Mary Douglas's anthropologist Mary Douglas's concept of dirt, which is that dirt is just any matter out of place. So noise would be any kind of sound out of place, and in that sense, it it seems very like a very ordinary kind of distinction to make. But what I was interested in, which is a little bit different than that sort of banal maybe form of of difference, um, a difference that would um, be purely contextual or purely relativistic was the way in which certain kind of discourses of noise do have more weight historically and culturally, especially in Western understandings, but even um, in the way that it thinks of shaped out in, in global cultural development. So I broke it into three areas, uh, aesthetics of, of noise, and, and that was very much a, for a long time, a Western kind of history, because the, you ha you're dealing with some of these ways in which noise was formally separated uh, from music on the grounds of value, aesthetic value, which it, you know, it isn't in, in, when I say Western, I mean a particular Western history because it isn't separated in most Western music and it isn't, it isn't, it's just conceptually important, uh, especially in the 20th century. And then this uh, noise music, which came out of that uh, in the 80s, since the 80s, which, which actually used the term to name a form of music. And then I talked about technology and how important technology is uh, to developing that, that concept. So when I say noise is communication, in some ways I'm dealing with the concept of the neutral, apparently neutral technological system of communication in which noise is this thing that blocks signal and has to be uh, removed in order to make a cleaner recording. We we're talking today about how to make this recording um, freer of noise the kind of noise that's that's uh, happening on Skype. So the, the, these um, kinds of uh, results of a built environment of industrial cities, of electronic um, equipment, of a technological soundscape, and, and how, um, you know, ideas like Schaefer's ideas come out of that and how ideas of natural sound, the kinds that um, Feld works on in the rainforest, are in many ways opposed to this noise of the city or noise of the machine and can sort of conceptually noise takes on that kind of a power. So these are these particular discourses that have more weight. And the last one I wanted to talk about was just social. And in a lot of ways that deals with things like um, the assignation of social identities to noise, like that music that you play, you people, you people play noise. Um, our, our understanding of music doesn't include whatever your music is. And so that attaches very much to um, black music. It attaches to the music of migrants. Um, and noise has been used as a marker of difference and also, you know, also held up and celebrated on the flip side of that uh, for being something that that represents cultural agency, noise against uh, the social order, noise, noise that can change um, the norms of of, uh, of society and the noise of, of music. So those are th some of the ideas that I wanted to get to in dealing with noise. Um, and there are so many different particular aspects of that uh, to deal with. And I I just uh, chose a couple of different ones to, 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 uh, to focus on.
Mm-hmm. Uh, thanks, uh, thanks so much for that, and thanks to both of you. Um, as a final question that we always ask all of um, our guests on the podcast is, what are you both working on now? Well, I think um, this is Matt again. Hi. I think <laughs> I think um, I've always seen my particular bent in music studies and sound studies is to sort of look at um, uh, uh, music, especially. Uh, and how it relates to power and politics and inequality and racism. In, in other words, within the legacy of music studies uh, that uh, upholds a, a Eurocentric um, notion of what music is, looking at that as, as a form of, of colonial violence and how it interacts with other forms of colonial violence, such as um, uh, uh, anti-black racism and so my work here in New Orleans um, uh, has in the past been about um, uh, musicians who uh, uh, create the iconic sounds of New Orleans as a musical city mostly through uh, brass and drum instruments the soundscapes uh, uh, um, brass bands create as they march through uh, the city and all of the um, uh, uh, neighborhoods and also the, the um, urban planning decisions that uh, were meant to enclose uh, uh, and surveil African-Americans and how music um, and sound in those urban spaces disrupt that. And um, I'm moving on to a new book project about um, marching bands in New Orleans and music education and the state of um, arts education in urban charter schools where um, young black New Orleanians are really being experimented on uh, uh, in a national education experiment of privatizing education and um, uh, 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 reducing arts education. And what, what does it mean um, for the uh, uh, next generation of musicians and, and of, of New Orleanians in general um, uh, with uh, uh, their um, musical cultures uh, under threat in that way? <laughs> Sounds absolutely fascinating. Thanks for that. Uh, and what about you, David? Uh, well, I'm working um, on the same thing that's always obsessed me, which is the global circulation of music, uh, popular music in particular. So I'm 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 very interested in the representation of global music and the ways in which uh, transcultural exchange has changed over the years. One of the um, areas that I'm most interested in is the sort of curation and representation of of, of different forms across what we would usually conceive as, as uh, different cultural contexts. So how to conceive of exchanges in ways that don't reduce either on the one hand to celebratory narratives of the world opening up um, and becoming closer, and on the other hand, these anxious narratives of cultural appropriation and control of, um, of one culture's uh, uh, intellectual property by another. And so I've been looking at these curators and redistributors of music, especially uh, in Africa and Asia, and the ways in which uh, films and blogs and uh, different kinds of online social media accounts are used to um, to to talk about access, access to global musics and the way that that changes so rapidly. So I'm, I'm interviewing a lot of people who curate um, that music, like people who run labels, 
world music labels or people who make um, films, whether they're fiction films or documentary films, or and then some things that might not even be considered uh, media productions per se, but just the kinds of videos people throw up on Facebook of 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 different. Um, of different sites. So there's a kind of question here that resonates with the history of field recordings, which is very important, I think, in sound studies. There's a lot of work on bird songs and the way in which uh, recordings give access to the natural world or give access to a, a, like a disappearing world of folk traditions or of language. And field recordings have that that sort of essential point of access within them. So I'm really interested in sort of turning over that concept of access when it comes to um, sound media and musical objects and and the way that that films are part of this, the way that people are recording, you know, the sounds of a glacier cracking to give access to the to the to the results of climate change, the the effects of of uh, a certain kind of uh, a global mass um, change that that that's supposed to be condensed into some kind of sound that you can hear and 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 then somehow access this you know massive um, uh, planetary shift and then you know within that dealing with questions of transcultural exchange and what where does culture even fit into that picture anymore or how do we even conceive of 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 cultural difference of course which is as strong as it ever was in many ways um, as we get uh, increasing apparently increasing access to to these um, different parts of the world through sound through media mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That, that that also sounds something that really look forward to to reading the fruits of uh, um, sometime soon in the future um david and matt thank you so much for coming on new books and sound studies it's been a real pleasure speaking with you today thanks ian I think the only way we can really close the the podcast is um a little bit more of uh, matt's favorite music Ooh, <laughs> <laughs>